You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. We live in a difficult world, and I don't think anybody would argue that point. I mean, we look around and you see brokenness and hurt and difficulty uh, that abounds. And I think that what our world inevitably produces, although I know the list could be long, three things that come to mind are skepticism, insecurity, and uncertainty. I think there's a built-in skepticism that we have as a people as a result of the unfaithfulness of so many things that we have placed our trust in or people that we have placed our trust in in the past, as well as our own internal rebellious nature and hearts, I think there's an insecurity as well that wells up inside of us as a result of, you know, just fractured lives and relationships and uh, broken families and careers and There's an insecurity that plagues us, and then there's an uncertainty, you know, a unwillingness to land on a belief or a system or a philosophy, but an uncertainty that abounds in our culture and in our world. And what I want you to see today in John chapter 10, verse 22 to 42, is simply that Jesus offers in a skeptical and difficult age, he offers leadership that is worth following. And he offers security in an insecure world and certainty where uncertainty abounds. Now we pick up our story in verse 22 where it says that at the time uh, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now what we have to focus in on here for a moment is that in between verse 21 and verse 22 there is a gap of at least a couple of months. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 1 through 21, Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem about his identity as the good shepherd. And you remember that section ended with a little miniature debate about whether Jesus was demon-possessed or whether he was from God. And uh, there were those who said, he's insane, he has a demon, why listen to him? And there were others who said, can one who is oppressed by a demon... Open the eyes of the blind, uh, because that is what had happened in John chapter 9 to the man who had been born actually blind. And so a few months later now, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. He had left the region. He comes back to Jerusalem, presumably after a period of time ministering up in the region of Galilee. He comes back to Jerusalem, and it says that he comes at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is essentially, in modern times, Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. And, uh, of course, this particular feast was not a biblical feast. In other words, it wasn't prescribed by God in the Old Testament, but it was uh, merely a feast that commemorated the re-consecration of the temple by Judas Maccabeus, in 164-165 BC. Now he was an interesting historical figure, not a biblical figure, but historical figure, who was highly regarded in Israel. Uh, He was considered on the plane of Gideon and 
David and Joshua, these great warriors who had won significant battles for the Jewish people. His dad was Mattathias the Hasmonean, who was a Jewish priest. Mattathias had five sons, of which Judas was one. And these five sons were responsible for leading a revolt and rebellion against the Seleucid Empire and their ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who had desecrated the Jewish temple. And Judas Maccabeus uh, was involved in freeing the people of Israel and driving out uh, the Seleucid Empire. And his name, Maccabeus, indicates and means, most likely, hammer or sledgehammer. All right, so they're walking around during this feast that commemorates the hammer or the sledgehammer, and at this point they are under Roman occupation. And at this time it says that Jesus, verse 23, was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. You may recognize this colonnade of Solomon from the book of Acts. Peter preached a powerful message there. The church would become familiar with this place. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They come to Jesus and say, hey, listen, you know, we've been debating about you for a couple of months now. This uh, part of the debate has been, are you demon-possessed or not demon-possessed? But now after a couple of months of debate, we would like you just to speak plainly with us and tell us whether you are the Christ. Now, the important thing to note is that when they ask Jesus that question, they are basically asking for a Judas Maccabeus type of figure to arise called the Christ. They are waiting for the sledgehammer part two. You know, they want the return or the sequel. They're looking for a Christ who is going to drop down the hammer upon the Roman government, drive them away, and bring Israel into superpower prominence once again in the world. They would fixate their minds upon prophecies like Isaiah 42, verse 13, where it says that the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Or Isaiah 66, verse 14, he will show his indignation against his enemies. Or Isaiah 59, verse 18 and 19. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. They would fix their mind on prophecies like that and expect and anticipate the coming of Christ. They would look at a Roman soldier in his full garb, overseeing them and policing them and in their minds they'd be waiting for the Christ to drive out that man and that representative of that Roman government. And so Jesus answered them in verse 25 and said, I told you and you do not believe. So Jesus clearly says, listen, I've told you that I'm the Christ. You're asking me to tell you plainly. Here's my answer. I have already told you and you do not believe. Now, what did Jesus mean? Well, he clarifies it when he 
bounds on that statement by saying, the works that I did in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So he looks at them and he says, listen, I, I already told you that I'm the Christ, but you did not believe. And the way that I told you is through the works that I do in my Father's name. But you do not believe me because you're not a part of my flock. So Jesus makes it clear. He says, listen, it's not like I've walked around Palestine with a t-shirt on that says, I'm the Christ. All right. He, he says, you know, I'm not self-identifying in that kind of way, but the works that I do are evidence that I am the Messiah. And, you know, there were prophecies in the Old Testament that the this figure would open the side of the blind, that the lame would walk, that life would be restored. And Jesus had done these things. And so his works were evidence. Now, keep in mind, however, that the kind of Christ that Jesus was and that they were looking for were not in tandem with each other. You know, they were looking for the world dominator, the ruler, and Jesus came as the servant, as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now, one day he will return and fulfill those other prophecies about the Christ. He will come and rule the world with a rod of iron. But at this first coming, he came as the servant savior. But he says to them in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, Jesus in this one little sentence gives us a beautiful definition of what it means to be part of his flock, what it means to be one of his sheep. You know, we're back obviously to the theme of the good shepherd. Obviously, now we know why John has attached this story to the previous teaching about Jesus being the good shepherd. And here he goes back to the flock and he says, listen, my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know, this is interesting to me because what Jesus said to these people who were asking, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. And he says, you know, I told you through my works, and you do not believe me because you're not part of my flock. In other words, what does it take to be a part of Jesus's flock? Well, according to Christ, it's belief. It's faith. But then he describes what that belief and faith looks like in verse 27 by saying, when they believe, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. This is the natural outflow of a life of faith. When you trust in the Lord, when you believe in the Lord, you hear his voice, you know him, and you follow him. And, you know, I understand that the Lord himself knows who are his. He understands who his sheep are. He knows the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. He understands that. But the thing here that I wanted to highlight is simply that in this crazy defiant world, Jesus presents himself as a shepherd worth following. Now, I think there's a reason why we innately are a little defiant and a little rebellious. You know, we have that defiant streak within us in part because we're a broken, fallen people. And we innately, you know, 
just like to rebel. We rebelled against a perfect God. And so we rebelled against imperfect people. But I think secondly, many things in this life are worth resisting, being defiant towards, and rebelling against. I mean, when you see broken, flawed, corrupt leadership, you want to rebel against it. There's just something inside of you. Now, it says concerning Jesus in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In other words, what I wanted to highlight from that little cross-reference is simply this. Number one, in Jesus, there is no sin. In other words, he is a leader that is worth following. He is pure in every way. There is nothing that they would ever be able to accuse him of. The witnesses couldn't do it. Pilate couldn't do it. Herod couldn't do it. He is good in every single way. He is worth following. And Jesus is that leader that will never fail. I mean, even the greatest boss... Even the greatest leader in this world is going to fail and falter from time to time and from season to season. But Jesus is always sinless and always perfect and pure. But on the other hand, I wanted to highlight from 1 John 3, 5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. You know, he's worth following because in him there's no sin. He's perfect and pure. But also because he actually has the ability inside of him to change our rebellious hearts. He can turn us into people who are willing to follow. To give us a new heart. To put a new spirit inside of us. The wonderful leadership of Christ. Now after this, Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. Speaking of his sheep. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so Jesus says a couple of beautiful things here. First of all, he says concerning his sheep, he says, I give them eternal life. I don't know about you, but I bristle at the descriptions of heaven that simply highlight length of time. You know, the idea that eternal life is just a very long life. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear a description based on Revelation 4 and 5 about heaven as a place where all we will do is sing songs to God, uh, just a couple of different songs over and over and over again for all of eternity. And, you know, there is obviously going to be a heart shift that takes place within us. We will want to sing to God with everything within us. It will, it will come bursting out of our hearts. But on the other hand, there is more to heaven than simply the throne room of God. Jesus calls it in John 14, his father's house. And in his father's house are many mansions or rooms. He calls it paradise and to the thief on the cross and to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. It's called a better country in Hebrews 11, a place of rest in Hebrews 4, and a place of glory in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. And so heaven, eternal life, it's a wonderful thing that we receive from God as his sheep. But he goes on and he says, secondly, he says, they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
He says, you know, they're secure in me. The, the thieves and the robbers that he had been speaking about, they wouldn't be able to snatch his sheep from his hand. And he says, my father, who is greater than all and who has given them to me, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So no one can snatch them from the hand of Christ and no one can snatch them from the father's hand. In other words, Jesus is promoting an incredible security for all those who are truly his. Well, we're talking about real, legitimate sheep. People who have given their lives to Christ in a legitimate way, where the Lord looks upon their hearts and he says, you are my sheep. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. You know, this is powerful because in an insecure world, Jesus is offering and promising wonderful security for his people. I mean, really, when you think about it, there is nothing that is secure in this life. Even the greatest marriage, the healthiest family, the strongest financial position, the most wonderful career, you know, none of it is guaranteed. None of it is secure. All of it is insecure. But in Christ, there is this wonderful security. The simple, lovely gospel that God so loved the world and that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, we have been, you know, set aside to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, whose power is strengthening us to be reserved for salvation. Is it the power of the sheep? No, not at all. He says it's by God's power that we are being guarded through faith. Those who trust in the Lord, the psalm says, will be like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The wonderful security that is ours in Christ. Now, in saying that, Jesus talks about the sheep being in his hand and the sheep as well being in his father's hand. And so it leads him to say in verse 30, I and the father are one. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not saying, you know, I and the Father, we're on the same team. Or I and the Father, we are, you know, on the same page about things. No, he is saying, I am distinct from the Father. The Father is distinct from me. But we are, at the same time as we are distinct, we are also one with each other. And the Jews understood this to be a statement of deity because it says in verse 31 that they picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You know, which which good work have I done that you're going to stone me for? (laughs) And uh, the Jews answer in verse 33, and they said, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
they understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. Now, like I've said before about the Christ, he didn't go around saying, I am God, but by going around saying, I am the Son of God, and I and, and God are one with each other, they understood that he was making a claim to deity. He saw himself as one in nature with God. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 34. He answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If God then called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, this is a little bit of a tricky argument that Jesus uses. He goes back to Psalm 82. This would have been very easy for them to understand, but it's a little harder for us to understand. Let's just get this straight. In that culture... When in Psalm 82, God speaks to them and he's talking to the judges in Israel who had been doing a poor job and he refers to them as gods. Now, the reason he refers to them as gods is because they were operating as under shepherds for God. They were communicating for God as judges. Now, in Israel, at the time of Psalm 82 and at the time of Christ to these Jews, there would have been no one who was silly enough to stand up and say, well, there it is. We are all deity. We are all gods. God is the universe. God is, you know, the trees and the ocean. And God is us. No, there would have been nobody ridiculous enough to make such a claim. So that's not what God was trying to communicate. He was trying to rebuke these under-shepherds, these judges, and he was using the title God as a rebuke by saying, you're supposed to be my messenger and speaking for me, yet you aren't. But it was an audacious thing, you know, a wild moment in Scripture for God to use that title with them. But it was a title filled with rebuke. But Jesus is saying to these people, he's saying, listen, there were those who God spoke to and called gods who the word of God had to come to them. Jesus then says of himself, I'm not in that category of the word of God needing to come to me. No, I'm in a different category. And, and here's the category that I'm in. I'm the one of whom they say, the Father consecrated and sent into the world. There's those who the word of God came to, and there are there is the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if that character who is above all says, I'm the Son of God, if you're unwilling to be upset about what God had said in Psalm 82, then you really shouldn't be upset about me claiming to be the Son of God. Just a comparison that Jesus was using. And so he goes on and he reaffirms his identity as the Son of God. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. There was no confusion with Jesus. He was one with the Father, the Father in him, he in the Father, which was a bold statement 
This is not the kind of thing that a man can say. He is claiming to be the eternal son of God. And by being the eternal son of God, he is God revealed in human flesh. Now, I love this because Jesus continually goes back to it and presents himself with absolute certainty. He's saying, listen, I know who I am. I know exactly who I am. I am God the Son and the Son of God. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty with others about Jesus, but not with Jesus. He is certain even when others are not. You know, you take Mormons, for instance, who believe that Jesus was the first of many sons who were procreated in heaven by a God named Elohim and one of his many unnamed wives, and that Jesus was the older spirit brother of Lucifer who became the devil, or the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was merely Michael the archangel physically manifested, or Islam who explain him by saying he was merely a human prophet or Buddhism, who the Dalai Lama at least said Jesus was just a fully enlightened human being. The common denominator in all of those views is simply this, a denial of Jesus's eternal nature, that he had a beginning. But John has been going to great pains in this gospel to tell us that in the beginning was the word. In other words, at the very beginning of all that we know, at the beginning of creation, Jesus already existed as God the Son. And when he came, it wasn't his beginning. And so Jesus is certain about that fact, uh, even when others are uncertain. So again, verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands and went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Outside of Jerusalem, out in the wilderness, many people believed in Christ. And what a wonderful certainty and security and leadership Jesus provides for us. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.